Aaron has a cheat sheet up here with all the things of the service. And I see here it says sermon, Robert Wright. There's a column that says the event, who's doing it, and the time allowed. And everything on here has time, one minute, three minute, except for the sermon. It says XX. So I think that means that I can go on forever. Nope. nope. I can't do that. So, All right. Well, as you know, we've been studying in Luke for a while. And as we approach Easter, Good Friday, the sermon series is No Greater Love. No Greater Love. And as, as our calendar progresses toward Good Friday and toward Easter, we see in the scripture that Jesus is per- progressing toward Jerusalem. And this week we find ourselves in Luke 14. In this chapter, some interesting things have happened before the text that I'm going to use today. We see that Jesus has dined at a ruler of the Pharisees. And on this, the Sabbath day, he's he's gone ahead and healed a man in front of these lawyers and Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, as you know, were a religious and political sect in the first century. They were identified by strict observance to the written law, to oral laws, and traditions. It's interesting because... As I mentioned, it was a Sabbath, a day of rest, a holy day, a day set apart. And Jesus healed this man. Next, we see the parable of the wedding feast. And we see that Jesus teaches us that we should seek the lowest seat. Jesus teaches that even the lame, the poor, the crippled, they should be invited in. They are the ones who cannot repay in kind, just like we cannot repay Jesus for what he has done for us. The scripture moves on to the parable of the great banquet. And in this parable, we see um, people who had excuses and reasons and other priorities for missing the banquet. In the banquet, there is still room. And we see in verse chapter 14, verse 23, we see that the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men were invited shall taste my banquet. There's many that are too busy for the banquet, too busy for Jesus, too busy for the master. This teaching occurred while Jesus was dining in the home of that ruler of the Pharisee. The Gospel of Luke now transitions a bit. It transitions from this example of not giving the master the proper priority to teaching us how we should give the master the proper priority. It moves from that home to a great crowd. So if you join me in reading, we'll read Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. In the Bible, in the pew, if you want to pull one of those, I believe it's page 874. The Bible says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it 
began to mock, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against them with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends out a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him scripture today. The God, you might pierce our hearts. You might teach us, God. You might show us the way to be your disciple. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see that in verse 25, the great crowds were accompanying Jesus. You see crowds, sporting events, movies, maybe a play, a drama, maybe it's... How about the shopping mall at Christmas time? You've seen the crowds. Many of them are much like you. We're all much like you. The physical features, head, arms, legs, ears, eyes, noses, mouths. They talk, laugh. They cry just like you and I. They think, they have emotion. They dream and they hope. While they are very much physically like you, perhaps when you watch them, they're different from you. I'm not talking about race or hereditary or things like that, genetics, but rather what they value, what they think about, what is important to them. Think about a place you, you've gone and you've seen a crowd. Some are there with friends and family to enjoy fellowship, relationships. Some may be there to eat and drink, some to watch whatever's going on, to participate. Some are there willingly, some come grudgingly, some come out of some sort of obligation, some came because they were invited, and some come because there's nothing better to do. As Jesus traveled toward Jerusalem, the scripture tells us that a large crowd was with Jesus. I can't help but think some of them were truly following Jesus. Undoubtedly, some of them were following him because he was meeting their personal needs. Perhaps some were following Jesus because he was interesting. He was a great teacher. He had great, interesting truths. Perhaps some followed him simply because who he challenged, the Pharisees. Maybe some saw that he loved them. Who knows all their reasons for accompanying Jesus? We just know that Luke says it was a great crowd with him. What's your reason for being in worship today? What's your reason to be with Jesus today? You see, he's actually here. He tells us in Matthew 18 that for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. So what's our reason for following Jesus or being with him today? I've been to far too many funerals in March, Friday, and I had been studying this passage for about six weeks now, thinking about it. And as I was attending that funeral, the person leading the funeral said this, this is a celebration for someone who had Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. This was a person who was a faithful disciple. 
I had to reflect on what that word disciple meant. And yesterday I couldn't help but think, well, we were celebrating the life of Ray Wagerman in a worship service proclaiming Jesus and what Jesus had done in his life and what Jesus had compelled Ray to do throughout his life, that Ray lived a life in service to Jesus. What a disciple. Dictionary.com defines a disciple. Talks about the 70 followers that Luke describes in Luke chapter 10. Or any kind of other professed follower during Jesus' lifetime. But I think a disciple is more like these days Christ. It's a person who is a pupil or an adherent to the doctrines of another. Are we, do we adhere to the doctrine of Jesus Christ? What comes to mind when we think of disciple? What are the characteristics of a disciple? We could go on and think about that. But our text tells us exactly what Jesus says is a disciple. You see, that word that means a company is com- comes from two Greek words. One means to follow, and the other one means with. To follow with. Those that are with Jesus, following him, Jesus defines what he expects, what he desires out of a disciple. He wasn't talking about those 12, those super saints, because the Bible says a great crowd, a large crowd was with them. He was talking to the people. He was talking to you, and he was talking to me. In verse 25 of our text, in 26, let me reread that. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... And yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. I have two brothers and one sister. I also have... Ah, I have a beautiful bride, Patricia. That's my mom and my dad. My mom passed away two years ago this week. That was our wedding day. These are my three beautiful daughters, Taylor and Savannah. Does Jesus really say, I need to hate them? Man, I love them. What's he he meaning then? The first characteristic of a disciple we need to look at today is about Jesus. It's about a person. I'm going to be fighting the screen. It's about a person, Jesus Christ. So when he says you need to hate those people. He doesn't mean hate them as we understand hate. He means we need to value them less than himself. That Jesus has got to be number one in our life. Jesus tells the crowd that in order to be my disciple, you have to prefer me over you. That hate word is a hyperbole that's common in the Hebrew scripture. It was an exaggeration for effect. We see this throughout The first place that I personally see it is in Genesis 29 when the Bible talks about Jacob going and working for seven years because he loved Rachel only to find out that Laban has given him Leah. And the Bible says there that that he hated uh, Leah. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Did Jacob really hate Leah? No, he just loved Rachel more. In the same way, you and I need to love Jesus more than anything. He's got to be number one. Did Jesus discount his own family? 
How did he do that? Did he demonstrate it? Did he not love his mother? No, we can see even on the cross when his mother was there, he told John, John, behold your mother. He was even in the excruciating pain on the cross. He was showing his love for his mother. But his love for God the Father was even greater to the cross. He went to the cross. He loved God even more than his mother. He showed us that truth. We must love God more than our family. This is consistent with the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I know I mixed those up in the order there, but we need to love God with every fiber of our being. To be a disciple, Jesus has to be number one. The second thing we see here in the scripture is the text says, yes, you need to, even your own life, you must hate or you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is calling us to have a commitment to him that is greater than our commitment to anything else. Jesus has to be number one. Discipleship also is about a place. What is that place? The destination is the cross. In verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross cannot come after me and be my disciple. David Platt said that in a world that revolves around you, Jesus says, crucify yourself. The cross brings a, should bring a vivid image to us as a Christian. It's the image of death, the death of our Savior, Jesus. We know that the path to the cross was brutal for him. Not only was he crucified, but he was beat and he was bloodied. There's a picture of his arms and feet nailed to the cross that we have in our minds. The picture of them raising that cross up and Jesus hanging there between two criminals, paying the price for my sins, for your sins, the thing that separates us from God the Father. Making the payment that Romans 6.23 calls out, the wages of sin is death. It's separation from God Almighty. Jesus tells us to bear our own cross. What does that mean? First, it means that we must follow his example and that God's will is greater than our own will. Remember, Jesus said in the garden, not my will, but your will when contemplate dying on the cross. Second, it means to die to ourselves. The disciple's life is no longer his, but it belongs to Jesus. What an excellent transition from 26 to 27, where he calls us to hate our own life. Bearing our own cross means that we must die to ourselves and live for Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul in this passage tells us to be just like Jesus in that. We must be prepared to be obedient to the point of death. The scripture says that Jesus emptied himself. We must empty ourselves. Third, I think it means that we must be willing to be obedient even to death. The cross is the instrument of death. I'm reminded as I look at a cross sometimes of that first Christian martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The Bible says in Acts 7.60 
that uh, Stephen says, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. That's what I need to be prepared to do if I really want to be God's disciple. You see, discipleship is about the, a place, the cross, kind of sobering. The third characteristic, di, uh, discipleship is about possessions. Skip ahead to verse 33. The Bible says that Jesus said, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's about possessions. Renounce all that you have. Jesus pointed out to us that we must hate, or as we learned earlier, love less, our family. We must bear our cross. And now he is saying we must denounce everything we have to be his disciple. Why? God knows that we can only have one master, one Lord, one priority in our life. The gospel clearly points this out. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus teaches the parable of the rich fool. The man who built bigger barns to store his abundant crop. Luke 12, 19 through 21 says these words, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and not rich toward God. Immediately following that parable, Jesus tells his disciples to not worry about food and clothing, but to seek God's kingdom. Instead, Jesus says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now listen to this, verse 33 of Luke 12. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It is not that God wants our money. It is that God wants our mind and our heart. Because where our heart is, that's where our treasure will be. Chapter 18 of Luke tells us about the parable of the rich young ruler. Jesus said, and a ruler asked him, "Good." the Bible says Jesus... And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he was very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. God wants our possessions. Discipleship is about renouncing those possessions. In chapter 16, Jesus is clear in verse 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Discipleship's about our possessions. Finally, discipleship's about a plan. Let's go back to verse 28 through 32. Remember that Jesus is talking to a crowd, 
All kinds of people, all kinds of reasons for being with Jesus. Some, no doubt, were with him because they believed he was headed to Jerusalem in a crown. But Jesus was headed to Jerusalem for a cross. The crowd could not see the end result. So Jesus shares two examples for the crowd to consider. For what, Verse 28, For which of you desires to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish it. You've bought things before where you didn't realize the total cost. That car... What happens when you get a car? You got to have money for gas. You got to have money for a tire that gets flat. You got to have money for spark plugs, spark plugs, insurance, registration, taxes, AAA. You got to have money every three to six months to change that oil. Did you count the cost when you bought that car? Benjamin Franklin said, failing to plan is planning to fail. Part of a plan is knowing how much it will cost. Jesus had shared with the crowd the basic truth that being a disciple is costly. He tells us to count the cost. He teaches us that there is definitely a cost to being a disciple. As many of you know, I worked for Intel for many years, and I got to see some crazy things. In the middle of the 1990s, I had been attending seminary here in town, um, and that's where I had Dr. Cohn for a few classes as my uh, professor. Uh, go, uh, Southwestern Seminary was the first one to come here, and I took classes on Monday nights, Saturdays, and uh, Southwestern in that time had some funding problems because some things going on with the administration and stuff, and so they decided to leave Albuquerque. And fortunately, Golden Gate came in and had classes there for three to four or five years. They had a different strategy. They, they brought in professors. There had a few more students, but in the end, that was not viable either. Intel decided that they were going to build Fab 16 in Fort Worth, Texas. And I thought, oh, I really want to finish that seminary degree. I'm going to go and look for a job. So I applied for a job, flew out to uh, Fort Worth and went out and saw the site, and by this time they had built this huge comp, uh, concrete slab. Fabs are huge, huge buildings. And I interviewed for the job, and I was offered the job, and something just didn't seem right. I couldn't put my, my fingers on it because I knew, man, I can go and, go and finish this seminary degree. I had about 50 hours or so at this time. It was before online classes, so it was, it was either go or done. Something said, don't take that job. So uh, when the manager called, I said, I'm not going to take that job. I'm going to stay in Albuquerque. Yeah, within days, they announced, we're not doing this plan. That building sat there till 2003 with just the concrete slab. They didn't count the cost. There was reasons why they weren't going to be in, in Fort Worth, Texas. So all those people got shifted all over the world. It was uh, foreshadowing for me because we ended up going to Israel a few years later, but... And, um, but they didn't count the cost. A few years later, in 2007, I was part of the group that planned capacity for Intel, and we decided to build Fab 42 that sits in Arizona. Huge, huge, huge building worth $5 billion. Intel sunk $5 billion. And $5 billion into this building. That was 2007. 
Today it sits pretty empty. They're starting to put in equipment. In 2020, finally, there's enough capacity, there's enough need to put the equipment in. $5 billion wasted for 13 years. Count the cost. The second illustration Jesus gives is, or, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The message here is the same. Don't start until you have counted the cost and assess the likeliness of success. I'm reminded of a hymn that says this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Growing up, I never liked that hymn. I just thought it was too simple. Isn't that what Jesus says as a disciple? I read recently the story behind this song. It was the 19th century. A Welsh missionary in India finally had his first convert to Christianity. This man, his wife, and two children came to Christ. The man was a contagious Christian. And evidently, many villagers begin to accept this Christianity. The village chief was angry. He confronted this family to renounce their faith or be killed. The man's response, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. This made the chief furious. The chief ordered that the two children to be killed. As the children lay dying on the floor, the chief asked, Will you deny your faith? You have lost both of your children. You will lose your wife also. But the man responded, Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. In his fury, the chief ordered the death of the wife. In no time, the woman was dead with the two children. The chief asked one last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. The man's response, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Through the death of his family, a miracle took place. The village chief was moved by the faith of this man. After he had passed, it, it, it is said that the chief wondered, why should this man, his wife and two children, die for a man who lived far away land and in another continent some 2,000 years ago? There must, there must be some supernatural power behind, this, behind the family. I, too, want that supernatural power. It is recorded that the village chief announced, I, too, belong to Jesus Christ. 
and the whole village turned to Christ. You see, discipleship's the only plan, the only goal, the only strategy for us. That's why Jesus says to love him more than our family, more than our very lives, to be willing to bear the cross. Discipleship, the only plan, the only goal, the only strategy. Luke ends this chapter with these words from Jesus. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no, of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has, hears, he who have, has ears to hear, let him hear. Why did Jesus bring in this salt passage? It's kind of strange. He had told us to love, our, our, love Jesus more than our families, to be willing to die to ourselves, to prepare to die for him. Tells us to renounce our possessions because he's the master. Tells us to count the cost. You see, salt is used as a preserver of meat, as you know. In any old city in the Middle East, you walk through the marketplace and you'll see, you know, headgear and shirts and stuff. And then right next to it's a butcher with big pieces of meat hanging on the side. I remember when we walked through the old city, that was the strangest thing to me. That wasn't what the butcher was. You're supposed to get the meat at Albertsons and Smith's. Safeway, not hanging from the ceiling. You probably know that, huh? You've seen that, yes. In, in Jesus' day, they, they would take that meat and place it in large tubs or vats and saturate it with salt. The salt pulls the moisture out of the meat that bacteria would grow in, and it's able to preserve the meat. Not only does the salt preserve the meat, it adds flavor. That is why at most tables you'll see a salt shaker filled with salt intended to help flavor our food. Now in our house, my wife cooks so good that we never put salt on anything. So there you are. The salt in Israel, an hour's drive down the road from Jerusalem, 70 miles, not probably not even 70 miles, 40 miles down the road, you drive down and what do you see? The Dead Sea. That's where they were getting the salt from. You see, the problem with the Dead Sea is the salt's not exactly like sea salt. It's got some impurities there, some dangerous minerals that, that are in that area and in the salt. So if you take that salt just as it is, you, you could be putting poisoning in your meat. So they had to do it in a special way. And the salt, if it's bad, it tastes bad. Jesus said, what, if, what would happen if salt loses its taste? The text gives us a rhetorical question that that bad salt that meat cannot be restored. Interesting enough that the Bible gives us a way to restore that salt. Normally, anything that was ruined, you'd throw it away. It's not even good for the soil. It's not good for the manure pile. That's crazy. What about in our life? I, I find it interesting that Jesus puts this passage here right after he tells us to be a disciple. For five or six weeks, I've been realizing I'm not a very good disciple for those reasons that we saw there. But God is a God of many chances. And fortunately for God, he gives us a restoration path, a way to become salty again. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of my biggest sins is I'm not a very good disciple. 
Many times I don't put Christ first in my life. Many times I love possessions more than I love Jesus. Many times I won't bear my cross. Thank God that he says if I confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As is our custom here at Monterey, we have a time after the sermon for reflection for you to contemplate what it means to be a disciple that the scripture has clearly taught us today. Perhaps you are here today and God has spoken to you. Perhaps there is one thing that is keeping you from being 100% for Jesus. If there is, you need to take this time and confess it, eliminate it. Take it from your life and burn it. It was in 1519 that Hernan Cortez, you can go to the next slide, thank you. Hernan Cortez arrived with 600 men near Veracruz, Mexico. This was the beginning of his conquest of the Aztec Empire. It took him about two years. Cortez made the decision to burn the ships so that the 600 men would know there was no turning back. There was only one plan. They could not retreat. They could not give up. The only thing they could do is pursue the Aztec Empire. The message was clear. No turning back. I think many times we need to burn the ships that are behind us so that we're headed straight toward Jesus. The passage said, toward the cross. That's the place we need to be. It was a convicting message for six weeks, as I've already shared with you. Maybe you're here today and you said, man, I've never trusted Jesus. How, how can I do those things as a disciple? The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Today's the day that you asked to... You need to ask Jesus to be your Savior, but not only your Savior, be your Lord, so that He, through the Holy Spirit, can enable you to be a disciple. Put Jesus first. Both Pastor Aaron and I will be down up front. If you have a time you'd like to reflect and have someone pray with you, reflect in God's Word, do it right now. This is your time. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You for your description of what a disciple is, God. And we often all put up a list of things on the wall that says, this